0: Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Last week we examined the first half of this chapter and saw some important lessons from Paul about what worship should be like. We saw that The gathered worship of the church is to be intelligible, that is, it should be understandable, it should make sense. Thus, argued Paul, gifts like speaking in tongues should be reined in and used accordingly. And because prophecy is more edifying to more people, it is to be preferred to tongues. And that would lead Paul to make the statement that he would prefer five words said intelligibly than 10,000 words said in a tongue. We also saw that the entire conversation about spiritual gifts was to be motivated by love and aimed at the edification of the congregation as a whole. And he said that multiple times. Edification, the building up of the body, the building up of the church, that's the aim. Not merely our own individual, individualistic worship experiences. Further, because tongues are a gift for unbelievers and prophecy a gift for believers, The ordering of a gathered worship service has implications for how the world views the church, how the world views and hears the gospel. Disorderly, unintelligible worship is repulsive to an unbeliever, while orderly, intelligible worship lets all parties involved know that the presence of God is active in that place. So with that brief reminder of what we've seen so far, let's continue our study. We'll read starting at verse 26. I'll go through the end of the chapter and we're thinking again, what should worship be like? So let's hear from the Lord. Verse 26. What then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and then let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion But of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or is spiritual, He should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to what is a difficult text, a text that can be hard to understand and has been implied wrongly by your church before. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have worship that is orderly, that is beautiful, that is edifying, that is motivated by love and builds up your name here at Morning View and beyond. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In order to help us... Frame the conversation. I think it's helpful for us to notice the major parts of Paul's argument. So, before we get into the weeds, let's look at the big picture. As some pastors have noted in the past, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And the main things in Paul's passage here tonight are clear enough. So, if I could say at the beginning, his major thesis is at the end, verse 40. All things should be done decently and in order. That's a premise. That's a major thesis that everyone can get behind. Well, I say everyone. Everyone here ought to be able to get behind. What should, order, what should worship look like? It should be intelligible. It should be decent. It should be orderly, not shameful, not chaotic. It should be decent, full of order. What that order and decency looks like will be spelled out in the coming verses. But we should note here at the beginning, decency and orderliness, that's the goal. Why is that the case? We can look at verse 33. The theological rationale for this framework is given in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God's a God of order. He's not the God of chaos. He's a God of peace, not confusion. That makes sense. If all of these spiritual gifts are given by God through the power of the Holy Spirit then there would be no reason for us to think that the worship, the exercise of those gifts, would be anything less than peaceful and ordered, motivated by that same spirit of the God of peace. It's incongruous. It doesn't make sense for the God of peace to give spiritual gifts to lead people to exercise those gifts to produce unpeace, chaos, disorder. It doesn't make sense. And So chaos in the church speaks to the nature of the God being worshipped. If a worship gathering is marked by disorder, it says something about the God they claim to worship. And so we should be careful that our worship is fitting to the nature of the God we are worshipping. Worship should be decent and orderly, not shameful, not confused. It should be peaceful, not chaotic. So with those major theses in mind, Let's get into some of the weeds here. We'll walk through this passage. We'll see first a word on worship, and then a word on women, and then a word on a word of warning. A word on worship, a word on women, and a word of warning. First, verse 26, we'll begin a word on worship. He says, what, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. See, part of the chaos that was present in Corinth And in their worship services was the result of individual clamoring for their favorite expressions of worship. Each one had an idea of what it should look like. They needed a particular hymn, a favorite song, a a particular teaching. One of them wanted to use their particular spiritual gifts. Everybody wanted what they wanted, and they wanted it right now in this service. And so we see that worship wars are not something new that bubbled up with the advent of contemporary Christian music. Worship wars go back a long way. And so Paul, to combat this jockeying in worship, he reminds them of one of the major principles that we talked about last week. Let all things be done for building up. Edification of the body ought to be your aim if you're motivated by love. It's not about you getting your preferences, you getting your individual demands. It's not about what I want to sing or what I want the sermon to be about. It's about what's needful for the body, what's good for the building up of the body. And if there is to be edification, if the body is to be built up, there needs to be order. Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be two or three at most, and each in turn, and then let someone interpret. Paul's saying we can't have you stumbling all over each other, speaking over one another. We need order. Apparently, there were people in Corinth speaking in a very chaotic manner. It was not conducive to edifying worship. And similar to what we discussed last week, for tongues to be edifying, they needed to be intelligible, which means they must be interpreted. Someone's speaking in a foreign language, and nobody in the room can speak that language. It doesn't do any good how wonderful the words are. Nobody knows what you mean. If there's no one to interpret, verse 28... And let them keep silent in the church. You go talk to yourself and talk to God. Tongues without interpretation is useless. It doesn't edify. It doesn't build up. And so, like Paul said earlier in this passage, it'd be like someone banging on the piano over there, not playing any music, just making noise come out. Unharmonious, chaotic racket. It would be better for there to be silence than to be that noise. That's what uninterpreted tongues are. They're noise that would be better if they were just not talking at all. And we've discussed tongues at length, so I'll I'll move on to the next verse. And we'll see the same orderliness needs to be applied not merely to tongues, but also to prophetical instruction. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and then let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What does all that mean? Well, it means that for worship to be orderly, prophecy cannot be just uttered willy-nilly. We need some structure. We need some guardrails, Paul is saying. Let someone speak. And then let the others weigh what is said. It has to be sifted. It has to be tested. It has to be applied and examined in light of the prior revelation of God. So Paul uses similar language in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. John says something similar in 1 John 4. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Prophecies needed to be sifted and tested. They needed to be examined to see if they conform to prior revelation from God or not. Giftedness, giftedness alone was not an assurance of reliability. And so the testing of the word needed to be done. And it's worth noting, even the apostles were subject to such verification. You remember Acts 17, the the Berean believers were commended because they were searching the scriptures daily. They were checking to see if what Paul was saying was the truth. He didn't just say, I'm an apostle, you listen up. He said, I am subject to the word of God. You are to be commended for examining my word in light of the revelation of God. And the same is to be done today. Everything you hear in this pulpit or any book that you read, any podcast, any video, any of it needs to be tested against the touchstone of God's word. And part of the problem of the, of the charismatic movement today is that there are self-proclaimed prophets who anoint themselves as one speaking on behalf of God. D.A. Carson, who's, who I don't agree with on everything in this area, has a book and he wrote a really incisive word on this point. I wanted to read it to you. He said, one of the most troubling aspects of some parts of the modern charismatic movement is the frequency with which prophecies are given as direct quotations from the Lord. This aberration, and he says, and from the biblical point of view, that's what it is, an aberration. This aberration is then compounded by too far little attention is given to the importance of Paul's exhortation here on weighing carefully what is said or on 1 Thessalonians 5 to test everything and hold on to what is good. Carson goes on to say, the inevitable result is that some charismatic leaders and their followers treat the prophecies of their leaders as if they possess the unqualified authority of God himself. And such authority on American religious television programming is easily transmuted into a fundraising device. God has given the leader a prophecy that commands him to build something. And so he tells the people to send in so much money and there's no community of believers carefully checking out this claim, nor does the leader submit himself or herself to the evaluation of a spiritually-minded community. The resulting exploitation is manipulative, arrogant, sometimes dishonest, corrosive to the leader's humility, and destructive to the spiritual maturity of their followers. I think Carson's assessment is spot on. Even though he writes as a convinced continuationist, he thinks there's prophecy today. But brothers and sisters, this must not be so. We must, as a congregation, as individuals, seek to have such a thorough knowledge of the scriptures and a careful listening ear to the teaching of God's word so that we can test it for the faithfulness and the reliability of what is being proclaimed. I urge you to do that with every word that comes out of my mouth from this pulpit or from anywhere I'm teaching from God's word. If it doesn't align with scripture, then throw it out. Hold fast to what is good. The ultimate test of faithfulness of somebody's teaching is not what feels right or what is really impressive or what is pleasing or what is culturally acceptable or even what is easiest to hear. The ultimate test of any teaching's faithfulness is does this match the word of God? Does this conform to God's prior revelation? If it does, then it will edify And it will promote orderliness in the church. It will tend towards decent, God-honoring worship. And why is that? Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God will not contradict himself. He cannot. He would not, and he could never, reveal something today that contradicts what he had previously said. A God of peace will not produce chaos and confusion. He will edify through his word. Next Let's move on to the second point. We've seen a word on worship. Now let's look at a word on women, starting in verse 33, second half of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Here we have a text that is admittedly difficult on the surface. Many questions arise. Is Paul simply addressing something weird going on in Corinth or is he giving a universal admonition to every church? Are women forbidden to speak in any way or just in particular ways? How does this relate today? Well, I won't go go through all of the pages and pages of interpretations that are way wrong because there are many. Uh, But I'll just go through a few of the questions one at a time. First, is Paul addressing something unique, peculiar to Corinth, or is he giving an instruction for all churches? Well, I think that's a question that's answered by looking at the text and other Pauline writings. For example, verse 33 clearly says, as in all the churches of the saints. Seems to me Paul is not addressing something unique to Corinth, but a temptation that's found in all churches. The same logic is applied to 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul forbids a woman from teaching or having authority over a man. What is his rationale? He doesn't say, because you people in Ephesus got it way wrong, women in Ephesus can no longer teach. No, he says, because of the garden in creation. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Woman was made second and not first. She was made to be a submissive helpmate, and therefore it's fitting that she submit to the authority and teaching of the one that was made first. All of this was built upon universal principles and patterns built into creation, not some localized contextual argument isolated to Corinth or Ephesus. That eliminates a whole bunch of the literature that says, well, this was just something special in Corinth. Just threw it all out. Next question. Does Paul's instruction mean that women must be silent in every area of worship? Well, some interpreters take this passage to mean that. But I'm not convinced of that. Well, why is that? Well, the immediate context of what we've read in 1 Corinthians 14 was on the weighing of Prophecy. That's verses 29 to 32. We just talked about that. And it seems to me, and this is a majority position in the history of the church, that women were not forbidden from speaking altogether, but were forbidden from the authoritative exercise of the weighing of prophecy. The weighing and testing of prophecy possessed a sort of instructional and applicational dimension. It was authoritative, and therefore that was restricted to the office of of men. That conforms with Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 2 and the rest of scripture where the authority of leading and instructing was reserved for men. And It shouldn't be shocking to us given what we see today, particularly in the charismatic movement, that the roles of gender can be confused in worship services where the spiritual gifts are used in a disorderly way. Many of the charismatic churches and movements today that emphasize tongues and prophecy also tend to have very prominent roles for women preachers and prophetesses. Prophetesses. The same problem was in Corinth. It survives today. And so by way of application, let me t- speak to the men for a minute. We need to be doing our homework, don't we? Did you catch that in the text? We should be so thoroughly steeped in the scriptures and Christ-like in our leadership that we don't leave a vacuum either in the church or at home that women feel like they must step up and fill. In fact, Paul's argument that the women should save their questions till they get home and ask their husbands assumes that the men should have some ability to field those questions. Men need to be diligent. They need to be prepared. They, They don't need to have every answer. We're not meant to be God. But we need to have a thorough biblical knowledge and, and at least to try to answer these questions in a biblically informed way. You see, so often in the church and in home, a man abdicates his role and leaves a situation where the women are the ones that have the biblical knowledge. They're the ones that surpass their husbands in biblical and doctrinal knowledge, and so they feel the need in their husband's weakness or absence to step up and take the reins. God would warn us men against such apathy. I think we should also learn from this that we should be looking for opportunities for women to be involved as well. It's not that they have to be silent and sit in the corner. Like in Islam, you guys are in the back behind the curtain and the men are up front. That's not what Paul is saying here. We should find ways for them to exercise the gifts that the God of peace has given to them. Some women can sing and thereby thereby edify the church. Some can edify through prayer, as many have done in our pastor-led prayer times during this evening service. Some have been gifted to teach, and so we should be diligent to find appropriate opportunities for them to do that in a way that edifies the body and conforms to biblical principles for how God has ordained the church to function. That should be our goal, decent and orderly worship that conforms to God's pattern for leadership and submission all rooted in love and aimed at the edification of the body. Now, before we move on to the final section, I want to address one more question. Some people believe there to be an inconsistency in what Paul is saying here regarding women. In chapter 11, Paul speaks of women prophesying, but here in 14, he says the women need to be silent. So which is it, Paul? Of the many possible interpretations, the two that seem most likely to me are this. The first one is that in chapter 11, Paul is simply addressing head coverings, specifically women prophesying with their heads uncovered, and he's not getting into the legitimacy of that action itself. He's just addressing something he sees as a problem. Later, he'll get to the prophesying. That's possible. Um, Doesn't really seem likely to me. Rather, I think it's resolved by thinking back to chapter 14 as the evaluation of the prophecy. We know from other scriptures like Acts 2, Acts 16, Acts 21, that women were prophesying in the early church and that it seemed to be permitted. Nobody ran around and told them, you got to be silent now. you got to be silent right after Pentecost. That's not what was happening. The apostles didn't seem to have a problem with women properly prophesying. The problem comes in in the evaluation, the testing, the weighing and sifting of that prophecy. But you shouldn't be engaging in the weighing of prophecy, which would be akin to our authoritative teaching and preaching. That, se- that, to me, seems to be the most logical of the alternatives. I hope that makes sense. Judging by the look of some of your faces, I've lost some of you. I hope not. Uh, if I need to, I get an interpreter for the tongues I've been speaking. but. <laughs> Lastly, let's move on to the third point and see a word of warning. And this will be brief. I'll finish with this. A word of warning, verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not to be recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Paul reminds the Corinthians of where the gospel came from, how they got the truth. And he encourages them to recognize the authority of what he's saying. He's not being mean. He's not being chauvinistic. He's writing the command of God. These are not trifling matters the worship of the lord and the order of that worship is a matter of significance and he says that to reject the lord's instruction in this area to fail to recognize it as god's teaching means that you're not to be recognized to ignore the lord in these areas is to sentence yourself to be ignored the church has skirted around many of these issues for a long time to its own hurt But Paul would remind us that we mustn't ignore the word of the Lord, lest we ourselves become ignored. Rather, all things are to be done decently and in order. That's our goal. Motivated by love, aimed at the edification of the body, that's our charge. The question is, will we be faithful with that charge, or will we ignore it to our own peril? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is the true son of God, the lamb who has come to take away the sins of your people. Pray that we would remember, that we would cherish, that we would share that good news. that We would believe and by believing have life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.